Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we are able to gather around your word this morning. Uh, We pray that as we look at your word, you would work in our hearts, uh, that we would uh, grow in our uh, wonder uh, for what you have done for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Titus, uh, the reading that Bob read for us, Titus chapter 3, as we continue our sermon series, Christmas Cards from Paul. Well, imagine it's uh, Christmas Day and there's a knock on the door. Christmas Day and there's a knock on the door. Who could it be? Your long-lost auntie you haven't seen for months. Maybe it's your embarrassing great-uncle who you're always a little uneasy about because he's lost his party manners. Maybe it's your neighbour come round for a few post-lunch beers. Maybe it's the kid from next door come to fetch his ball that he's hit for six into your back garden. Who could it be? You open the door slowly... And who should it be on your front doorstep but God, the King. He's arrived. He's appeared. He's showed himself. Imagine if that happened. Imagine if that happened. You'd never be the same person again. It would dramatically change things, wouldn't it? It certainly changed things for the people of the church that young Titus was looking after here in Paul's letter. In our passage, Paul tells the tale of two lives, as it were. Verses 1 to 2, Paul tells Titus to remind the church to live honourable lives, to do good. And it's a vast contrast to the description put forward in verse 3. But come with me and look with me first at the first of the two lives from verse 1. Paul says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle toward everyone. Titus is to remind the church how they are to live in relation to those who rule over them, as well as how they are to relate to others. Paul sets forth their Christian duty to obey authorities. It's not an unconditional allegiance. Their duty is first to God. See, verse 1 tells us they are to be ready or eager to do good. God has set authorities in place to advance what is good and restrain what is evil. And so the Christian cannot cooperate with the state if it reverses its God-given duty, promoting evil rather than restraining it, and opposing what is good rather than promoting it. Whilst ever the authorities are promoting what is good though, Paul says here that the Christian is to be subject to and obedient and ready to cooperate with rulers in doing what is good. What else are they to pursue? 
Verse 2. Verse 2, they are to slander no one. They're to be peaceable and considerate and always gentle toward everyone. I wonder whether you're having a sense of deja vu at this time. Essentially, you see, they are to be Christ-like in their behaviour towards others. It is, as we saw last week from Philippians 2, to have the mind of Christ. It's a different mindset, a different way of life from what is described in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul describes what his life, what Titus's life, the church's life was like beforehand. And it's not a pretty picture. It contrasts starkly with the picture put forward in verses 1 and 2. Paul speaks in four ways to describe this way of life. Look what verse 3 says. Foolish and disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. It's an unsavoury picture. It's not a nice picture. And yet it's the state of every human being born into this world. I wonder whether you notice the contrast that Paul puts forward between the two lives. One seeks to live obediently. The other is disobedient. One is eager to do good. The other living in malice and envy. The one peaceable and considerate and gentle. The other being hated and hating others. Paul's message here is consistent with the rest of scripture. The Bible's message is clear. People are not basically good. There's not a big pool of people who are basically good, like your neighbour who always keeps his house and yard tidy and has good manners, and a small number of people who are bad, like your other untidy neighbour, who borrows your stuff and your money and never gives it back. No, there are not two groups of people in this world, the good people and the bad people. No, all people everywhere, from the seemingly moral, upright citizen... To the worst criminal in Long Bay Jail, we are all in the same boat. We are out of relationship with our maker and therefore standing under his just judgment. In our passage, the contrast between the people described in verses 1 and 2 and the people described in verse 3 is massive. Surely it's not the same lot of people, is it? Yes, it is, Paul says. They've exchanged one mindset and pattern of living for another. What's happened? What's brought about this radical change, this transformation? Verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, He saved us. Well, what's happened? Well, God has appeared 
bring salvation. The kindness and love of God the Saviour has appeared in the baby whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. Jesus. The King has arrived and that changes everything. Paul's letter to Titus, like all his other letters, it's not written in a vacuum. Titus is looking after a church in a place called Crete. Crete was in the Roman Empire and its residents were dominated by Greek mythology. Paul speaks into this context. Paul uses language well known to the Cretans to turn their world thinking, their world view, upside down. And so to the Cretans, the god Zeus was believed to have risen from humanity to become a god. Paul therefore speaks of the one true God descending to us, taking human form. In Cretan thinking, Roman emperors were known as God made manifest and king of kings. The term gospel was associated with momentous news like a king or emperor winning a battle. Advent and Epiphany were terms to use to describe the arrival of a king. And so in his letter, Paul uses all such language to show those in Crete the good news of the appearing of the one true God, the one true king, God our Saviour. And that here in Jesus is the one true God revealed, made manifest, who is worthy of all our worship. God our Saviour has appeared, but what's he come to do? Well, verse 5, Paul says he's come to rescue. He's come to rescue, he's come to save us, because we couldn't save ourselves. And what's the ground of this Rescue? Is it the righteous things we had done? No, verse 5 says clearly that the ground is God's mercy alone. It's not because he saw us and saw something worthy or good in us to save us. No, no, it's all out of his love and mercy. And how does he save us? What's the means? Well, verse 5, it's through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. God's Spirit comes into our lives and gives us a new heart. We are born again to a new kind of life. Our Old Testament passage from Ezekiel looked forward to a day when God would give his people a new heart. A heart of flesh rather than a heart of stone. This is the day that Paul is writing about. The day of the appearance of God our Saviour Jesus Christ. Notice that being born again or, or having been given a new heart is something that happens when we put our trust in Jesus. Paul's language could not be clearer. He speaks in verse 6 of the Holy Spirit 
being poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Saviour. God dwelling in us by his Spirit, giving us new birth, making us a new person. It's not disconnected from trusting in Jesus. No, they go together. And what's the result of all this? Verse 7, you're justified by God's grace. You're made right before God. You stand rightly before him because of what Jesus has done for you. This is what happens when God gives you a new heart. He makes you fit and ready to stand in his presence, to be welcomed into his kingdom forever. See what Paul says in verse 7? That because we've been born again, because we've been justified by God's grace, we have become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Here is language that we heard from Philippians 2 last week. We are co-heirs with Christ, having the sure and certain hope that we will reign with him forever. The imagery that Paul uses here of the appearance of God's love and kindness is of a ruler bestowing gifts on his subjects. <laughs> and what gifts our God bestows on us? Salvation, rebirth, his spirit, his grace, becoming heirs, having hope of eternal life. God's people here in Titus are a new people. They've been thoroughly transformed. And so can you see how Paul can command Titus to remind the people to be ready to do whatever is good? They had no capacity to do that beforehand. But now, but now... God, their Saviour, has appeared, rescuing them, transforming them, and giving them the hope of eternal life. This transformed life that comes about through the Gospel is a big focus of Paul's letter. Five times Paul writes of a people doing whatever is good. And notice in verse 8, the verse that follows our passage, that Paul writes, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These people can pursue what is good and right. Why? Because they've been thoroughly transformed and changed by God their Saviour who has appeared, who has saved them, giving them the hope of heaven. And now, because they are transformed people, they can live godly lives. And so I wonder, as you approach another Christmas, as you come to another year and look back at your year, and maybe there's things that have given you much joy, maybe there are our regrets, maybe you wonder about all the things that you could have done this year. 
as we approach another Christmas, what's going to fill you with the most amount of joy this Christmas? What's the thing that has so utterly changed your life? What's going to fill fill you with joy? Well, maybe it's the appearing of a gift you've been hoping for. You'll enjoy it for a while, but the joy will eventually wear off. Maybe come this Christmas, the thing that will give you a lot of joy is the appearing of the Boxing Day test on TV. You'll enjoy it for a few days, and then the grind of life will kick in, and you'll have to pick yourself up from the couch and get going again. Maybe... Maybe the thing that will give you the most amount of joy will be the appearing of family you've been longing to see. And won't that be wonderful? Won't that be wonderful? But you'll have them for a while, but it, but it won't last. In fact, not only will they not be able to stay forever, uh, but sickness may prevent you from seeing them. And death is no respecter of gatherings at Christmas. Paul tells us, here is a massive joy filler. The appearing of God our Saviour, who in his kindness and love has come bringing salvation for all who believe in Jesus. So what else are we waiting for? Nothing will so fill us with joy. Nothing will so transform our lives. Nothing will set us up in life and prepare us for death more than the appearing of the kindness and love of God in our Saviour, Jesus. This is why the baby came. To give Good gifts to God's people. And so let us be a people who delight and rejoice in these good gifts. More than that, let us be a transformed people who delight in our gift giver, God our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for the appearing of your love and kindness in our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that he came among us to rescue us, to make us a new people, to make us right before you, to make us heirs having the hope of eternal life. Father, these are amazing gifts. And we pray, Father, that this Christmas they will be the source of of great joy for us. Uh, Most especially, Father, this Christmas we pray that you, our Saviour, will be the source of great joy in our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.